quick disclaimer, the views and opinions expressed in this podcast are provided for informational purposes only and should not be construed as an offer to buy or sell any securities or to make or consider any investment or course of action. For more information, go to bestevershow.com. I have this fundamental belief, and I differ from most investors in my opinion here, but I want to buy real estate that I like. Welcome to the Best Ever Show, the world's longest running daily commercial real estate podcast. Our hosts interview commercial real estate experts every day to get you the best advice ever with none of the fluffy stuff. Hello, Best Ever listeners. Welcome to the Best Real Estate Investing Advice Ever Show. I'm Ash Patel, and I'm with today's guest, Dana Bull. Dana is joining us from Boston, Massachusetts. She is a repeat guest on the Best Ever podcast. If you Google Joe Fairless and Dana Bull, her previous episode will show up. Dana is a real estate advisor at Dana Bull Real Estate Consulting, where she advises clients on ways to maximize wealth through real estate. Dana's portfolio consists of small multifamily properties, single families, and older historic homes. Dana, thank you for joining us. And how are you today? I'm great. Thanks for having me. It's our pleasure. Dana, before we get started, can you give the best ever listeners a little bit more about your background and what you're focused on now? Sure. So in terms of real estate, I got into real estate right after I graduated college and I had a brief career in marketing, but then went full in with real estate. So actually what's interesting about my story is I built my entire portfolio in my early twenties. I actually stopped actively investing by age 28 and over the past decade, I've been working with clients. So wait a minute, did you not get the real estate bug? And if you're at an event and you hear the word good deal, do your ears not perk up? They still do. I think it's this knee jerk reaction, but ultimately I had a very clear plan that I executed on. And one of the hardest things for me was deciding when to quit. <laughs> so starting off, I had the plan. And so I knew when I hit my goal, I needed to actually remove myself from the market and then reevaluate. So it's been about seven years since I've been out of investing, however, still actively working with other can investors. You, can you share what the plan was and what the goal was that you achieved? Sure. So I broke down my plan into two distinct parts. The first was a financial goal. And the second was the lifestyle goal. I can say that the financial aspect of things was way easier to achieve. And the lifestyle part is ever evolving and dynamic. So that part is harder not to crack. But starting with the financial piece of things, I had a goal of making $400,000 gross through rental income. And then my approach was just to take the path of least resistance. And how do I obtain the least number of units in order to achieve that goal. So for me, that ended up being 21 units because the average rent at the time when I started was $1,500 a month. I'm in Massachusetts. So the real estate is super expensive and rents are high. I ended up with 22 units. That's just how things shook out and ended up surpassing that goal. So you know, I'll pause there. <laughs> most people set a goal on the amount of passive income they want every month. Mm -hmm. And I always advise people against that and instead set a net worth goal. Why did you choose to do your gross or your essentially your bottom line goal versus passive income? I think for me, for one, I was really young. So the idea of not working wasn't even part of the equation. I also was pretty content 
with my job. So this, I, I wasn't trying to escape anything. It was more to just add another revenue stream. And I just remember back then thinking, well, that's a lot of money. <laughs> I should be happy with that. And I think my focus at the time was not so much about making money, but it was about making a machine that would make me money. So it was almost abstract and it was really to just give me a target. So that's where I hold that number out of thin air. Goal, financial goals are often moving targets. You set a financial goal and you think, wow, like if I can achieve that, that would be incredible. Once people achieve that, the goal gets kicked further down the road and then add another zero and so on. Right. How come you didn't do that? Well, I do think that there's power in quitting while you're ahead and real estate can be passive, but it's also not. <laughs> it's actively passive and I love it, but it does add a layer of complexity and there's some stress involved with owning real estate. Even if you have a property manager, even if you have the team in place, then you're managing the team. And what really shifted for me was some lifestyle pieces. I got married. I had three kids in under four years. And now it's, I think it's important to take a pause and just see where we're at. I know it sounds strange to say, but it would be lazy almost for me to go out and continue to buy more real estate because that means I'm not thinking about what else there is. Yeah. I feel like it would be undisciplined because it goes against your plan. Yeah. And what were your thoughts when you created this plan? You were going to achieve your financial goals. What was going to come next? So having the flexibility is key. And even though it wasn't like I didn't enjoy my job, having the ability to walk away is a position that I think everybody wants to be in. So having that leverage is really what drives me in all of this. I'm going to keep working. I enjoy it. But if I ever want, to pull the plug, that option is available. So that truly motivated me. I have a lot of flexibility during the day, which is great, especially as a busy mom of three kids, you have to react. Working in the real estate market here in the Boston area, it is crazy. So you have to be able to respond and be agile. So I appreciate that the investment properties give me that flexibility. That's incredible. It's, and again, I admire the discipline because often we get in that hamster wheel, that's not your job, but it ends up being real estate and you just keep going, building. Next thing you know, you've got a team. You can't just walk away. You right. built this thing and it's harder to walk away from this than it is quitting your full-time job. Good for you. What are you doing now? So since I built the portfolio, I did purchase a couple of single family homes for me, I know this probably might fall on deaf ears with a lot of your audience that's in commercial, but I just have seen this gap in the single family home market. So I'm trying to sort of position myself there. And I love that area of the market. I love residential. The other part of my story is people often ask, why didn't you graduate to commercial? Why didn't you go bigger? And I picked a niche and I went really deep into it. And I love residential real estate. So what's funny is I started almost bigger and I've gotten smaller. I went from buying three and four unit buildings to buying single family homes. But where I'm spending most of my time is working with clients. So I have my real estate license. I have a team in Boston. We're ranked amongst the top 1.5% of real estate professionals in the country. And we're actively working with clients. So safe to assume this is a job that you love. I do. I love it. Obviously, 
I've given up on finding balance. That's not even on my radar anymore. And I think to work in this line of work, you need to be okay with that. There are certain days where it's too much and then there's great weeks and I'm at a point where I just accept it all <laughs> and I'm willing to, to ride that wave. Playing devil's advocate, that goes against your plan of having the freedom. Well, some days I know I'm going to get the freedom or I do have periods of rest and then periods of going really hard. And overall, when I look at the week or I look at the month, there are many pockets. Even right now I'm doing this podcast. That's something that I wanted to do and I'm able to do it. And if I were working in an office or I had some other type of job, it wouldn't be possible. You essentially have the freedom to curate your day. Yes, exactly. I love the way that you put that. Good. What are you investing in that keeps the passive income coming in? Are you investing in other people's deals? It's actually just the cash flow from the properties. Okay. So you still have the properties that you want. Oh, yes. I've never sold. I still own everything. Yeah. The acquisition phase was between the ages when I was 22 to 28 years old, I was actively acquiring the properties. And then all of the properties that I purchased needed work. They were older. I've owned properties built in the 1700s, 1800s, early 1900s. So some of the major renovations, and I call that sort of repositioning, got the rents up. And now with the portfolio is I'm in the optimizing stage. So building out a better team and looking at the properties and kind of getting out of defense mode and more into offense. Okay, what capital improvement projects do I want to tackle over the next 10 years? What does that look like? As opposed to when I was rapidly acquiring, I had to make a lot of money (laughs) and then go out and procure these deals. So that was a very intensive period. And now it's a slower pace, but I'm able to kind of think ahead and plan ahead for what's next for the properties. Dana, you mentioned you saw a gap in the market. What was that gap? So the gap that I'm seeing right now is in the single family home market in my area, which is Boston and the surrounding areas. I do a lot of work with the millennial demographic, late twenties to early forties, I think are the oldest millennials. And this is the biggest buyer pool. And what these people want is they want residential neighborhoods. They want single family homes. And we're just not seeing those being built in part because of the land density constraints that we have in the Boston area. So some of the sort of traditional classical homes in areas near the city, that real estate is being sold at a premium. And I just see this gap between what builders are building, which is the luxury, higher-end homes, townhomes, and what it is that the buyer pool actually wants. So I feel like if I can purchase more single-family homes in those areas, long-term, that's going to be a great slow-burn play. These millennials want a big backyard, a walkable neighborhood close to the city. All of that sounds like it's at a premium price. Yes. How do you find these niches where there's still a value there? Getting creative with the property itself. What I usually look at is homes that others have overlooked. I really focus on the things that you can't change. The location, whether it's on a main street versus a quiet side street. How the house is oriented. People don't even think about, oh, where's the sun going to come in in the morning? The lot itself the land, it blew my mind when I realized how much 
land is versus the value of the land versus the property itself. In my market, which is super expensive, if you're able to get creative, you can sometimes have a big win. So I'll give you a few examples. Say you're buying in the city. If you can dig out a basement or if you can put on a roof deck, or if you can reconfigure square footage because the price per square foot is so high, that can be a huge slam dunk. If you're buying outside the city in the suburbs, can you finish out a basement? What are the height restrictions? Can you build up down the road? Because I fundamentally believe making the acquisition, even though the market is brutal right now, if you can make that acquisition and hold on to it, let's see where we're at in 10, 15, 20 years, that could be your entire retirement plan. What are young people wanting? I'm assuming you may add some amenities that help them if they're working from home. Pets are a big thing amongst young people. So there's the sort of Gen Z buyers, and these buyers tend to be in the very early stages. Many of them are first-time home buyers. They're very fixated on what's going on at work. They're in the building years with their careers. Maybe they're married. Maybe they're not. Maybe they have young children or they don't. And then I think there's the older millennial group that has slightly different preferences. But I think because we grew up in the age of HGTV, we have almost been groomed as to what we should want. We don't even know. We've just been fed the information and we're processing that. But what I see is anything turnkey is going to move quickly. Now, sometimes you'll get a parent come into the equation and say, wait, 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 wait. (laughs) Yeah, sure. The kitchen is great, but let's talk about the neighborhood. But I think without training, a lot of these millennial buyers will just fixate on finishes and then they need a bug in their ear or they need to have been educated on where some of the value actually comes from because usually it isn't. And the finishes play a part, but that's not the main bit, especially in a market where the real estate is so expensive and it's expensive because of location. Are garages and EV chargers in demand right now? Garages. It certainly depends on the market. For instance, if you're north of Boston or south of Boston and you're on the shore, kind of a different lifestyle out that way where people want to be closer to the water and they may not expect a garage. That might be a nice to have and not something that is top on the list. But say you're going out west and more truly into the suburbs of Boston People want a garage once they hit a certain budget. That would be a key amenity. And if you're in that sweet spot in terms of the budget and it doesn't have a garage, a home like that might be the first one crossed off the list. And EV chargers? Not really coming up. I know the millennials are always like, everybody's tech savvy and eco-friendly. That would not deter a buyer looking in a seven to $900,000 price point. If it didn't have that charger, they'd be like, we'll just add it. Good. So I do commercial real estate and our tenants will often improve our properties, retail, industrial office. So if they want an EV charger, by all means, have at it, make sure it's permitted. Yeah. A lot of our real estate is older. So their main focus is, okay, did it pass title five? They just want the bare bones, the basics, and then they know that they can add those perks on. Dana. So this podcast again is about leveling up, expanding. Have you Mm -hmm. ever considered taking on partners? to expand what you set out to do with your investing? So I have one true partner, my husband, (laughs) who's the best partner I could ever ask for. He would just let me go for it. So he's amazing. But actually that was a big topic of discussion that we had. 
around, do we want to invite people into what it is that we're building? And we were actually adamantly against that. The reason is I understand that that's how you can grow and scale, but I wanted control. (laughs) So you're hyper-protective over your time. Right. Okay. I'm going to share with you a story. Many years ago, I thought the goal was for my wife to quit her job. We've always both worked 60 hours a week, whether it's real estate or in her career. And we agreed on a number where if we hit this net worth number, she would quit her job. Mm -hmm. Well, I worked very, very hard and I hit that number. And when I presented it to her, I'm like, cool, listen, now you can quit your job. And her response is, why would I do that? Right. Because we agreed on it. This was a deal. And she's like, no, I love what I do. I get a lot of fulfillment and satisfaction out of it. So no, I'm going to keep doing what I do. So that took the wind out of my sail, right? Yeah. What do I do next? And I love doing real estate, love doing deals. So I continued doing it, even though there's no monetary goal anymore. What's your advice to me? (laughs) Keep going. I guess. So I struggle with a why, right? Right. The why for me is very simple in that I absolutely love doing this. I love working with the people around me, but there's really no goals anymore. There's no goals in number of acquisitions, net worth, none of that. It's just kind of doing what I love doing. Yeah. And that's okay. Yes. I think that's the point. That is why we wrap real estate into this elusive financial freedom. And then you get to a point and you're like, well, what was the point? And I have been very steadfast in, yeah, it can be stressful. It can be hard, but I always enjoyed the journey. And I'm very protective of real estate. I always want it to be my passion and what I gravitate towards for fun and excitement. And when it becomes not that way, got to ratchet it back. So both on the investment side and the client side, if I feel like I have too many clients, then I know, okay, I, I can't take on more clients. I have to refer out the business because that goes against one of the key pillars. <laughs> I would imagine you have a plan for what's next. Can you share that with us? So that's what's fascinating. No, <laughs> <laughs> I don't have a plan. I think that I got to marinate with that for a bit about what's next. I set one lofty goal for this year. I don't know how to cook at all. No cooking. And I need to figure out how to do that. And I've made zero progress on that goal. So again, I guess I don't really want to learn how to cook. That's the problem. (laughs) You learn how to renovate historic homes. Cooking won't be that hard. (laughs) I know, right? So back to you wanted the least number of units. I cringe when I hear that you're doing historic homes because I do, in my opinion, what's easier is commercial real estate, office, retail, industrial, where the management overhead is very simple. Mm -hmm. You are rolling up your sleeves and diving into unknown projects. Why not simplify that and get a retail strip mall? I have this fundamental belief, and I differ from most investors in my opinion here, but I want to buy real estate that I like. Anything that I want to acquire, I want to like it. And My argument there is I think to make money in real estate, to make real money, to really build wealth, you got to stay in the game. So whatever you do, whatever you're buying, how can you hang on to it? I know you can make short money by flipping or opportunistically selling if 
the right conditions present themselves. But my whole MO is how can I hold on to the real estate? And even when the real estate is misbehaving or not performing well, I'm not going to ditch it because I like it. And that I think is what separates me from most investors is I really think about it. And I don't care what anybody else thinks. If I like a property, I see potential in it, or I'm drawn to it for whatever reason. And the reason could be it's sunny. (laughs) That's enough for me to hold on. And I feel this way about anything that I buy. I could go to the store and it could be a $7 t-shirt, $7, just buy the t-shirt, but I won't do it unless I really love it. So with real estate, I just take that same approach where I have to have some emotion. And that's part of why I think I stuck with residential is because residential, there is a lot of emotion that goes into it. We'll get back to the show with first some sponsors I'm confident you'll find value in learning more about. Are you looking to raise money from private investors to buy commercial real estate? Syndicationattorneys.com is here to guide you every step of the way. At syndicationattorneys.com, they do more so you can do more. They create real estate syndication and fund offering documents, but they also educate you on the ins and outs of raising private money, ensure your offerings comply with securities laws, and help you structure fair deals with investors so everybody wins. With reasonable lump sum fees and over $2.75 billion in securities offerings created, syndicationattorneys.com has the expertise you need. But that's not all. SyndicationAttorneys.com also offers weekly attorney-led masterminds, networking, and strategy sessions through their pre-syndication consulting agreements. To learn more, visit SyndicationAttorneys.com today to get started. This offer is not available to Florida residents. Deciding how to invest your capital is more challenging than ever. That's why it's never been more important to partner with a company with a solid track record and that has thrived through various economic cycles. Companies like BAM Capital. BAM Capital is a trusted multifamily syndicator that has delivered a historical average of over 35% IRR with an average hold period of three and a half years. BAM Capital's never missed a preferred payment, never lost an LP's investment, and never called capital past the subscription amount. BAM Capital is currently raising capital for a fund designed for accredited investors targeting a 15 to 20% IRR and a 2 to 2.5x equity multiple to its investors over a three to five year hold period. If you're an accredited investor and you want to learn more about multifamily investment opportunities with BAM Capital, visit capital.thebamcompanies.com. Again, that's capital.thebamcompanies.com. There's no emotion in buying a strip mall or an industrial building. Is there not actually, can I ask you that? No emotion at all? That's a good question. I think there's less emotion and I'm going to come back and properly answer your question, but I've done this a lot too. I'll buy beautiful buildings or historic commercial buildings that are a couple hundred years old because there's an emotional tie to it. The pro forma I do later, I just know I have to buy this building. Yes. But let's say we buy a one to 10 year old strip mall No, the answer is no. There's no emotion tied to it. There will be emotion tied to the tenants. So once we get tenants in there, we're emotionally vested in their success. Mm -hmm. We do what we can to help them. We love seeing their businesses thrive. So that's the only emotional connection has nothing to do with the real estate. It's the connection with the tenants. So I have a mixed use building and I can relate to that on a much smaller level where the tenants on the first floor are solo entrepreneurs and I'm so invested in it. 
when we were choosing between applicants for the space, I really wanted to know what the business plan was. I wanted to understand everything, everything about the business because I want to see them be successful. And my goal is for this to be a 25 year arrangement. So that's interesting. So there isn't emotion with the buying, but you do have emotion with the business plan with your tenants. Correct. And so much so that pre-COVID used to do happy hours at my house once a quarter for mm -hmm. all of my commercial tenants. And it was great because they get introduced to each other. They can bounce ideas back and forth. If somebody's really strong with, let's say, social media marketing, people can rely on that individual. And there's some commonality there. So I, I love that part. I love interacting with the tenants. So I think that's your why. Yes. The community it, it, it very aspect. Well, of, very well, maybe. Yeah. Even I think with the real estate investing, I've always sort of been a little bit of an island with investing, but there's certainly a huge community and people just love geeking out on this stuff. So that's why I would do a podcast like this. It's fun to meet other people, hear about why and how they're building their portfolio. And I definitely get something out of this myself. Dana, can you tell us more about your mixed use building? Sure. This is one of those buildings where I was like, why do I want this building? It's a dump. <laughs> I think I actually liked the story of the owners. So it's a four unit building, two residential apartments on top and two storefronts on the bottom. And the couple who had owned it previously, they had owned it for 40 years. She operated her sub shop out of one side and the husband owned a barber shop on the other side. I think they were a Greek couple, super hardworking. And I just had so much respect for the fact that they both were entrepreneurs and they both had their own businesses and they also had this building together. And I just really admired that. So in part, it was the story of the building. I also saw a lot of potential in the building itself, flat roof, interesting architecture, and I liked the idea of investing into that community. That entire strip where that property is located has in the past 10 years pretty much turned over and a bunch of developers have come in and put in luxury townhouses. And there's so much focus on this building, what was going to happen with this building. And when I came in and said, no, we're keeping it as a storefront, people were just shocked by that. And the city tried to help us lease it out and everything. So. I guess that's why. <laughs> when you purchased the building, were the two tenants going to continue to operate or were they done? No. So they were retiring. Okay. So they were selling the businesses and selling the building. Did you have anxiety about being able to release those spots? Yes and no. I think the way I've approached real estate is I've never been fixated on the market itself because you can easily get scared and overwhelmed. And I've always been willing to bet on myself. Can I find somebody who wants to rent this? Yes, I can. They ended up doing a substantial renovation, the tenant who's now there, but there was no doubt. And also the residential apartments, that's the moneymaker for the building. The commercial aspect is marginal, but I knew the residential buildings could actually carry the costs of owning the property. Which is why I love mixed use for people transitioning from residential to commercial, because often the apartments pay for all of your expenses or vice versa. If I have a mixed use building, I focus on the commercial. I really don't want to deal with the residential part of it. Other people will focus on the residential and not really care too much about the commercial. But no matter how you split it, usually one side pays all your expenses. 
Right. Was it difficult to get a loan on this building? It wasn't because the lenders were also obsessing over it the same way that I was. (laughs) They were like, no, we want to get you a loan for this property. Where I'm struggling a little bit right now is insurance because it's not even in a flood zone actually, but it's close to the ocean. And I'm starting to see that with some of my properties that are near the ocean, the insurance is tightening up, which I knew was always a risk when I got into this. It's actually something that I've been flagging for a while and people seem to have been ignoring me, other investors, but I think that's my biggest threat is insurance, not so much financing. That is a huge challenge for anybody even remotely close to the coast. What was the purchase price of this building? Oh my gosh, it was cheap. I want to say I have 390, by far my most affordable, maybe 400. I don't remember. If this was just two apartments, take the commercial part out, what would yeah. that v- building be valued at? Same. Probably, probably 390, <laughs> right? Yeah. Yeah. So best ever listeners, you've heard me talk about this a lot. Mixed use buildings fall through the cracks because residential people don't want them. Commercial people don't like them. Lenders typically hate them. Insurance people don't even like them. It's a niche that nobody really chases, especially in older cities. The older buildings, there's just not that many buyers for that. Would you consider purchasing additional mixed-use properties? Oh, definitely. I actually feel like it's a really smart play in some of my markets because in the city, obviously, there's prevalent mixed-use, but north and south of Boston, you have these smaller downtown areas scattered up the shorelines and people want to support local. So I think that there's a play there, especially anything with a restaurant component or a cafe component. What are your tenants now? Is it still a barbershop and a restaurant? It's a sandwich shop and they've been there for five years. They built out the space. I want to say we have them on a five to seven year lease with the option to renew for maybe 25 years. And then I had a record store on one side. And I remember vetting the applicant and thinking, record store? Who's going to want records? But I happen to have a friend who's really into records. He helped me and advised me. And he was like, yeah, no, they have a good niche. I think you're going to be solid. They actually did so well, they ended up outgrowing the space. So they moved to a different part of the town. So I ended up recently releasing that space out and it's a tattoo shop that's going to be opening. It's amazing how expensive records are. Yeah. Um, The tattoo shop, I mentor a lot of commercial real estate investors and I typically advise against tattoo shops. Hate to paint with a broad stroke, but every time I've had one, it's ended poorly. Is your tenant doing okay? They're doing construction right now. So we'll see. I agree. Probably not my first pick, but where this market is kind of unique is the properties in Salem, Massachusetts. So no matter who I get, it's going to be something a little bit quirky. Got it. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, And I actually think they might do okay. It's going to be a single person that's operating it. We'll see how it goes. Listen, I'm not against tattoos. I don't want hate mail on this, but what I would watch out for and maybe add an addendum in your lease is that you can't have people congregating outside. You can only have a certain number of people inside because from what I've experienced, it turns into a hangout. I was going to say a hangout place. Yeah, it turns yeah. into a late night hangout. And that's great. Like people that have tattoos may have a lot in common with each other. 
So just be cautious about that. Yes. I really was very excited about a floral shop that was going in and it didn't end up working out, but that would have been ideal for me. (laughs) Yeah. The renewals that you have on your sandwich shop, are the rent increases built in? Yes. I'm trying to think back. This is going back five or six years. I believe what I did was the first five years, we gave them a small budget to do a build out, but they were mostly on the hook for the building out of the space. What was desirable about this unit is that it came with equipment because the previous owner had a sub shop. So she sold us all this commercial equipment. So we bought the building for three ninety. dollars I want to say there was probably about $80,000 worth of equipment. When you purchased it, did you have that equipment classified separately? No, we just bought everything with it. Okay. In the future, if you do this, have that $80,000 specifically going towards equipment and not real estate. The reason for that is your valuation is lower. So your tax base is lower. Also, you get that bonus depreciation on equipment. Ah, I think we are doing something like that. Okay. Is this the first year that you've owned it or no? No, no, no. We've had it for Uh, six years or so. I think we are depreciating the equipment. And by we, I mean my accountant who is pay grades above me. (laughs) The renewals, what percentage increase are they? I don't remember what the percentage was. I know we put a cap for moving forward. We wanted them to be able to forecast their expenses. So I know I added a cap where rent is not going to exceed X. What's your take on doing these leases where you don't know what marketing conditions are going to hold and what rents are going to look like? Good question. It's hard to know what the market is going to be in five years, let alone 20. Right. If at all possible, we will put five-year renewals at market rent. You just use the language market rent. I do. Mm -hmm. Now, some of your savvy investors, your national tenants, they won't go with that. You can tie it to consumer price index. Or you can add in triple net components upon renewals. So at your first renewal, you are going to pay your prorata share of insurance, of the property taxes, of maintenance. Now you convert these tenants into triple net over time. Mm -hmm. But I like the market rents. I just did a restaurant lease last week. We have 3% annual increases for 10 years. So 3% every year for 10 years, because over the last few years with inflation so high, it's crazy that multifamily apartment rents in certain markets can go up 12, 15, 18%. But because we have commercial leases that we might've signed three or four years ago, maybe their five-year rate increases 10%, right? one or 2% annual increases. So you just want to be careful about tying yourself in an inflationary market, especially. But that's also, to your point, why mixed use is so great is that you at least have the residential to offset. Should there be any huge changes like that, you can capitalize on the residential side. Yes. Now I'm going to give you an exit plan for this building if you ever want one. Yeah. When it's it's underwater and I'm trying to sell it. (laughs) No, no, no. The highest and best user to sell this to is going to be one of your commercial tenants Mm -hmm. because they can afford to overpay for the building, pay way above market price, and they will end up paying almost nothing in rent. So you can say, hey, sandwich shop, I get it. You pay me $1,000 a month right now in rent. How about you own this building and you will pay nothing in rent because all of your revenue will cover your expenses in your building equity. Right. And typically when you do the math, it's a huge win-win for everybody. 
The challenge is if they're buying it for over market, the appraisal will come in a little bit lower. So then you'll have to do a seller carry, which is great. Yeah. I always figured with that property too, I would hopefully be in a position where seller financing makes sense with any of the properties actually. Yeah. But it's hard for your tenants to turn down a free building. Right. Where they've established their business. Yes. Another reason mixed use buildings are great. One last question about all of your other properties. Do you pay down the mortgage or do you do cash out refis? I've never done a burr. I've never done a cash out refi. Could, but that would be most applicable, I think, if I were in growth mode. My original plan was actually to acquire all the buildings by age 30 and then to pay them all down by age 35. But what I realized is money was so cheap to borrow. And I kept hearing the term historically low interest rates. I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Didn't really internalize what that meant until it clicked one day. And I was like, wait, this really is insane. I researched everything about interest rates and it just didn't make sense. Why would I, when we have all these factors at play where the rates are low, rents are increasing dramatically and the properties are cash flowing and I'm not growing my portfolio needing to leverage. So I didn't. I didn't do any cash out refis. Yeah, I get it. My advice to you would be to do a portfolio line of credit. I do have that. Good. Because some of these crazy properties that you're chasing, they might not be appealing to banks. In this way, you don't have to worry about, am I going to get this loan approved? It's going to be, okay, cool. I got this line of credit. I'll just pay cash for it. Worry about the financing after I fix it up. Yes, I do have that as an option. Good. Which I think is smart in case you ever or whoever wants to tap it, it's there. Why wouldn't you have it? I'm a big believer in having lines of credit because using that as your reserve so that you can go and invest more aggressively and not be super tied up with having the reserve funds. But it depends how risk adverse people are. Again, Dana, what is your best real estate investing advice ever? Oh my gosh. I guess what would be on brand is Buy good real estate and have fun doing it. <laughs> that would be I my advice. Dana, are you ready for the best ever lightning round? Yes. All right. What's the ready. best ever book you recently read? I knew you were going to ask this question. And last night I was racking my brain, but I'm just going to be honest. I haven't read a book in five years. <laughs> I mentioned I have three kids under the age of five. <laughs> There's not a lot of reading happening. I'm sure you read a lot of children's books. <laughs> yeah. The Hungry right. Caterpillar. <laughs> <laughs> Dana, what's the best ever way you like to give back? I like to support those who support me. So for example, my client base, I love learning what they're into. I had a bunch of clients this year run the Boston Marathon. So being able to support them in their endeavors, I find that the most rewarding. Dana, how can the best ever listeners reach out to you? I'm on LinkedIn, Instagram, through my website, danabull.com. I'm on the internet. (laughs) Dana, thank you so much for your time today. This was a great contrarian conversation. Awesome. Uh, I loved it. And thank you for sharing your mixed use property details with us as well. And again, just thank you for your time today. Thank you. Best ever listeners. Thank you for joining us. If you enjoy this episode, please leave us a five-star review. Share this podcast with someone you think can benefit from it. Also follow, subscribe, and have a best ever day. Hi, best ever listeners. Joe Fairless here again. And one last thing before you go, would you like to receive a short weekly email with proven tips from experienced investors, free tools and resources, and a roundup of the week's most relevant news and best ever content? Well, if so, 
Join the community of nearly 15,000 commercial real estate passive and active investors who receive the best ever newsletter. Just go to bestevercre.com forward slash access and you'll get the very next one. I hope you enjoyed this episode. And as always, thank you for listening and have a best ever day.